You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 152, The Early War at Sea, Part 2, Building Big British Battleships. This week, a big thank you goes out to the new members, Eric, Michael, James, Zhao, Peter, Tom, John, Gerald, and Molly. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. This is one of those episodes where there's absolutely one pivotal source, the battleship builders constructing and arming British capital ships by Ian Johnston and Ian Buxton. It chronicles the evolution of the British naval shipbuilding industry from before the First World War until the end of the Second. I highly recommend it if you want a real deep dive into the -the behind-the-scenes actions that were so important to the building and maintenance of the Royal Navy during the first 50 years of the 19th century. In my view, it's a very interesting time period for the Royal Navy, as it dealt with many challenges, especially after the First World War, as the economic landscape of the empire quickly shifted. And while the Royal Navy would still be the largest navy in the world in 1939, the capacity of Britain to construct large warships would peak during the First World War. But even through all of the trials of the interwar years and then the Great Depression and all the changes that that brought, British shipbuilding would still be able to sort of begin another massive rearmament program in 1937, just in time for the capital ships of that program to be ready during the early years of the Second World War. These ships would be critical, absolutely critical, to the British war effort. This episode will discuss some of the evolution of the industry that would be able to build those ships just in time for when the Royal Navy needed them. During the 1800s, the British shipbuilding industry was consistently one of the largest, if not the largest, in the world. When it came to the construction of warships for the Royal Navy, by the 1890s, work was shared between the Royal Dockyards and then a long list of commercial shipyards. These commercial entities would build ships for civilian purposes as well as for the Royal Navy, and in many instances, they would also construct warships for other nations. This would be a period when British shipyards would build ships for a host of nations around the world that wanted the naval capabilities that ships could give them, but did not have the shipbuilding industry to do it themselves. The Royal Dockyards, on the other hand, focused on the construction of Royal Navy ships, and the goal was to give them at least half of all construction contracts 
so that the Royal Dockyards could stay busy and were kept up to date with naval technology as it advanced. An important moment for the Royal Navy over the next 70 years or so would be the introduction of the Naval Defense Act in 1889, which would be the genesis of the two-power naval standard, which would be a critical talking point for the Royal Navy in its efforts to keep or increase its funding. Essentially, the two-power naval standard was that the Royal Navy should be as powerful as the next two strongest navies in the world combined. It was a loose rule, not totally held to, and then kind of fell apart before the First World War. But the increased orders of the first Naval Defense Act, and then later the orders as part of the Anglo-German naval arms race before 1914, would see a much greater share of the Royal Navy's construction transition from the Royal Dockyards to commercial shipbuilders. During this time, those private companies had made massive investments in shipbuilding capacity and all related industries, many of which were heavily specialized in naval construction. For example, armor plate production or heavy guns and, and gun mountings, those were things that really only worked for large military vessels. And so, as often happens when there is a large desire for greater output from an industry, the existing players then expanded their operations even more, and new businesses also entered the market. In the case of British shipbuilding, this often meant companies would expand vertically in the market, so shipbuilders would build up their own capacity to produce armor or other specialty material, while armor or ordnance businesses would build shipyards so that they could start building ships. There was honestly just a lot of money coming out of the British government, and British industrialists were very good at optimizing that for their own gain. There were attempts to limit the profit margins of the companies involved, particularly around how the Admiralty chose to distribute construction contracts, which was basically always to the lowest bidder. This system worked really well because there were a lot of companies who were able to put in proposals for each construction contract. Like many construction contracts were getting 12 proposals, so there were 12 different companies bidding on that contract. And this also spurred a lot of investment in the industry in general, people trying to make sure that they could do things cheaply and quickly. And this would allow the Royal Navy to massively expand in the decade before the First World War. There would be 54 capital ships laid down between 1906 and the end of the First World War, although three of them would be cancelled during the war. The Royal Dockyards were still involved in these construction efforts, but as ships started to grow in size so rapidly after 1906, it became hard for the Royal Dockyards to keep pace. This meant that over the course of the naval arms race, some Royal Dockyards, like at Chatham or Pembroke, would no longer be capable of producing large capital ships, because the funds that were available for infrastructure improvements were concentrated in a small number of dockyards, particularly at Portsmouth and Devonport. This is important because the Royal Dockyards sort of existed in the first place as an insurance policy to always make sure that the British government had a way of building the largest and best naval vessels should it need to without the assistance of private industry. As the ability of the Royal Dockyards to create those ships and the volumes that were required uh, was reduced and the reliance on private industry became greater and greater, the British government, the Royal Navy and the Admiralty, set themselves up for a problem if there were economic changes that may have impacted the ability of those private industries to produce what they needed them to produce. 
you know, like important economic events like a four-year-long worldwide war that completely changed the world economic outlook. But before we go down that path, and we certainly will here in a moment, one of the things that has always impressed me about capital ships up to and including the Second World War was just how large and complex they were as construction projects at a time where there, there were no computers, there's no digital drawings, there's no CAD diagrams. They required a lot of skill and experience and a tremendous amount of manual work by workers to take the raw material and craft it into a ship. But for the First World War, the typical dreadnought required around 6,000 tons of structural steel, and that number would only massively grow as time went by. About two-thirds of this steel might be in the form of steel plates, and then the rest were various types of sort of structural supports. Often the plates were shipped to the construction site without being cut first, and then on-site there would be facilities to take the steel plate and cut it and bend it to fit the specific area of the ship in which it was being used. During the interwar year, this cutting process was usually performed through oxygas cutting torches, although older ships would have been completed through the use of large cutting shears. Sheets and beams also had to be shaped, forming the lines of the ship. Some pieces could be shaped while cold. In other cases, the steel would be warmed in a furnace before it was shaped. In either case, it was often shaped on various types of bending blocks, with the goal of matching it against full-size drawings and molds that would be kept in large shaping sheds near the construction site. Some of the more extreme shapes, especially those that were sort of near the ends of the ships in structural frames and structural areas, were often heated up and then bent against uh, pieces of metal that were already in the correct shape to allow to get the absolute perfect sort of bend on things that, that was needed. Up until the Second World War, the majority of ships were also riveted together. Although welding would become dominant during the war years, there would be some welding in various capital ships before the First World War, but it was often only used for non-critical and non-load-bearing structures. Uh, the problem being that uh, welding for a long time was was kind of brittle. Like riveting had a had a good kind of shock absorption in a way that that welding did not. Riveting was a process that started with holes being either punched or drilled into steel plates, with drilling being more precise and often even required for some of the highest strength steel. Depending on the area of the ship, the diameter of the rivets were between a half and one and a half inches, and the space between them would also shift, and in some cases there would be double rows of rivets to kind of achieve the, the strength that was required, so you'd see more rivets and larger rivets at places where the structural loads were the highest. A rivet team would consist of either four or five workers, with one worker heating the rivet in a small furnace, another placing it in the hole, another providing resistance on one side of the rivet, while the other side was manned by another person who had a pneumatic hammer to kind of drive it down. Then, due to the expansion of heated steel, the rivet would reduce in size during the cooling process, sort of pulling the steel together. One thing to keep in mind here is that while in modern shipbuilding, there's a lot of prefabrication that often happens off-site, this was not really how it worked before the Second World War. And this meant that even after the watertight hull was built and launched, the work was often not even halfway complete, at least for large capital ships, because a whole bunch of stuff had to be built on-site and placed in the ship in the correct location. 
the exact time it took to build the hull and then launch it, and then the time it took to fit out the ship with all of its contents, varied from shipyard to shipyard, from class to class, from from year to year, really. But the fitting out stage was often always longer than the time it took to get the hull ready to launch. This is an important thing to keep in mind if you see things like launch dates, which are often just when the hull was sort of floated for the first time and not when the ship was actually complete. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. At the start of the Second World War, the largest ship in the Royal Navy and the pride of that navy was the HMS Hood. The Hood had started life during the First World War, much like other ships that were in the Royal Navy in 1939. Because while British shipbuilding had just been churning out capital ships before the First World War to outbuild the Imperial German Navy, as soon as the war started, hard decisions had to be made about how to allocate resources. In a precursor to some of the same decisions that would be made after 1939, the Admiralty would have to be very selective about what material and manpower was put towards which projects if they hoped to get them completed during wartime. And these decisions would have long-lasting impacts far after the end of the First World War in 1918. For example, for our story of the Second World War, one of the more important decisions made during late 1914 was for the construction of two battle cruisers, which would eventually become the Repulse and Renown. These ships, armed with nine 15-inch guns, were first ordered in December 1914, and there were great efforts to build them as quickly as possible, with First Sea Lord Fisher working closely with the shipyards to ensure that maximum manpower was placed on the two ships, and to expedite construction, the machinery layout of the recently constructed Tiger was used, so there didn't have to be any redrafting or redesigning. The extreme focus on just these two ships would allow them to be completed by September 1916, and while that was too late for most of the sea battles during the First World War, it would put them in a place where they were two of the newest ships in 1918 when the war ended. 
Even before the ships were completed, the next class of battle cruisers were already undergoing design changes that would see their displacement balloon up to over 40,000 tons, much higher than the Repulse at 27,000. The new class would be called the Admiral Class, and while it was originally planned to contain four ships, there would be just one completed, the HMS Hood. The design of the Admirals would be delayed until August 1917 because of an attempt to take in the lessons of the Battle of Jutland, such as could be determined at least in such a short period of time, and then incorporate those lessons into the design. This largely involved a reworking and reconfiguring of the protection scheme, as it was felt that the protection of the British battlecruisers at the Battle of Jutland had not been sufficient. But even before the design was finalized, there were shipbuilding challenges for the admirals. The two problems were the same problems that would plague so many industries in late war Britain, or really any nation in Europe who was fighting in the war, a lack of manpower and savage competition for supplies. With supplies, the Royal Navy was competing against every other industry that required steel and other metals, like artillery or ammunition. This caused three of the ships to be suspended in March 1917, but the ships were not cancelled until well after the war. It was only on February 27, 1919, that the official decision to cancel all the ships other than Hood was made. When this decision was made, the Board of the Admiralty would write, quote, Having regard to all the circumstances, the board agreed that the construction of HM's ships Howe, Anson, and Rodney should forthwith be cancelled and the slips set free for merchant ship construction, and that in communicating this decision to the War Cabinet, it should be made clear that the question of building additional battle cruisers will be reconsidered at the earliest possible moment after the terms of peace are finally settled, as unless further battle cruisers are built in the near future, we shall before long fall behind the United States Navy in ships of that class. End quote. The hope was that even with the cancellation of the three ships, they could quickly be replaced by an updated design that would better match the capital ships being built by the United States and Japan. But instead, after their cancellation, British shipbuilding would enter into several years of very lean but hopeful times, as government spending would rapidly reduce from its wartime highs. But there was still hope that another round of capital ship construction would begin, with that construction being so important to the overall health and sustainability of the British shipbuilding firms. The lean years would last until 1922, or at least that was the plan. In the meantime, some British shipbuilders trying to diversify their portfolios in ways that would take advantage of their skills and experience. For example, some would uh, try to get some contracts building civilian locomotives, you know, other much smaller steel things. Uh, that was the path that Vickers and Armstrong Wentworth and some others chose. Others would, of course, move as much construction as possible to civilian vessels, but there was no denying the fact that large areas of British shipbuilding were going to go into atrophy if government orders did not resume. The real problem that nobody could solve is that there were no replacement orders to take advantage of these specialty techniques and plant that had been required for things like gun mountings or guns or armored plate. Like, those are very special things that most things, most ships do not need. Due to a, a lack of options, many companies would put production facilities that were dedicated to those kinds of items into a mothballed status in the hope that the building pause would only last a few years, 
while they also had to reduce the number of workers that they had working for them because they didn't have anything for them to do. The British Admiralty also hoped that the building pause would only last a few years, and there were efforts to design what the next classes of British capital ships would be. These would be the G3s and M3s, destined to be cancelled by the Washington Naval Treaty, but developed to match and exceed what it was believed the Americans and Japanese were planning. Provisional orders for the guns and mountings for the G3s were placed with Armstrong, Whitworth, and Vickers in August 1921. The mountings were the most important due to the construction times, and 15 would be ordered between the two firms. This would allow for four G3s to be constructed, with three triple 16-inch turrets, and then three additional mountings as spares. The M3 battleships would have even larger guns, nine 18-inch guns, but they were never actually given out to companies to begin building before the Naval Conference started. Then, at the Naval Conference, everything would change. The official cancellation of the G3s would be in February 1922, and it left the entire British armaments industries in a very rough spot. The previous lean years had been able to be endured in the expectation that construction would begin early in the 1920s, and now it was clear that there would be few capital ship contracts for over a decade. The only exceptions to this were the Nelson and Rodney, which would be laid down in 1922. So why have I just spent two minutes talking about the G3s and N3s when they were canceled almost 20 years before the Second World War? Well, I find it interesting because, as designs, they are the largest British capital ships, battleships, that were ever designed, that were ever close to being built, the G3s were even on their way to being built. And so I think it's interesting how these large ships, when construction starts again in the late 1930s, are not replicated. Things have changed by then, and the King George V's and then Vanguard are smaller than what was planned and then cancelled in February 1922. With the drastic reduction in naval construction, the Admiralty had to start getting strategic with how it was placing the limited orders that it had available, all of which were smaller ships, cruisers, submarines, destroyers, and smaller than that even. It was only by spreading these orders around that there was any hope in trying to keep the British shipbuilding industry afloat, but even this was not enough to preserve the structures of pre-war shipbuilding. Before the war, many of the largest armament firms had vertically integrated, controlling the maximum amount of the entire shipbuilding process. After the war, they began to restructure their firms, preferring to focus only on a few different aspects of the shipping industry, which resulted in the number of firms that were capable of constructing some components shrinking down to only a few, like the armor pieces, which would drop to just three firms. Along with this, the Bank of England became involved to help the industry to restructure and for armament companies to divest themselves from some divisions that had been created before the war, while still ensuring that Britain still had the ability to build large naval vessels in the future. This was a critical component of the considerations during this time because the British government and the Admiralty believed that Britain would need to maintain shipbuilding capacity and capacity that was greater than the anemic orders of the mid-1920s would support. But to do that would require some assistance from the government to preserve that capacity when orders were not available. And it was not just the shipbuilding industry that was in trouble here. You know, many industries related to naval construction, or even non-naval construction, just heavy industry, in Britain during this time were experiencing some challenges. One of the ways that this was sort of helped along by the government was from the Bank of England, who purchased shipyards and other facilities 
that were either redundant or in need of renovations, and then after the purchase, the assets would be disposed of or destroyed. So essentially, they were just giving money to industry to take possession of their facilities, even though there was no plan to actually use them. In 1925, a trade association, the Shipbuilding Conference, was also created through which all of the remaining shipbuilding firms coordinated their prices for the available construction projects to try and avoid the costly price wars that had been an important feature of the industry before 1914. But even these efforts, which essentially were just direct cash injections by the Bank of England and then some mild price fixing (laughs) among industry, could not prevent the industry from having kind of a, a widespread reckoning during the late 1920s. This came in the form of mergers, like Vickers and Armstrong merging together, along with simply a decay in the facilities and capabilities of British shipbuilding, and especially in the specialized equipment required for large naval construction efforts. While the years between 1922 and roughly 1936 were very tough years for British shipbuilding, they were able to survive. At least enough of them were able to survive. And that survival would allow them to experience the new shipbuilding boom in the years after 1936. One of the challenges faced by British rearmament efforts in the late 1930s was the lack of evolution and maintenance in the industrial infrastructures in Britain since 1918, at least in specialty areas like shipbuilding. Much of this infrastructure had been used far below capacity during the interwar years, and it would take time to ramp up its production as rearmament was pursued. There was also a problem of skilled labor. The the shipyards had been working far below capacity, which meant they needed far fewer workers, and so they essentially missed almost an entire generation of new skilled laborers that would have come into the industry. Now, this also meant that there was a ravenous interest in the first set of capital ships to be laid down after the naval treaties expired, ships that would eventually become the King George V class. A bunch of companies really wanted them and really needed them. The plans for these ships represented such a major change from the previous 15 years of shipbuilding that all of the major executives from the firms that that would be required to build them were invited to a conference in April 1936 to discuss the Admiralty's upcoming construction plans. For at least these first lines of ships, the same coordination and distribution would be present as had been present during the interwar years in the hopes of allowing multiple firms to kickstart their construction efforts and capabilities once again. This was important because the King George V class and the carriers that were ordered along with them were not the last ships that were planned to be built. During late 1936, there were already discussions about the next generation of British battleships, the Lion class, which were destined to never be completed. These ships would be even larger than the King George's, at 40,000 tons and with nine 16-inch guns. Vickers and Armstrong and Camel Laird were selected as the builders of the first two Lions, with both companies believing that they could deliver the ships from keel to completion in 42 months, with the giant caveat that they had to have enough labor available to actually accomplish this. Importantly for the future of these ships and for their construction, the orders would not be placed until January 1939 for the first two ships, and then the third and fourth would be ordered in August 1939. This meant that work had only really gotten started by the time that the war began. Then, on October 3, 1939, the Admiralty requested that the shipbuilders who had started on their lions suspend further construction due to concerns about labor and resource allocation. 
This was not dissimilar to what had happened in 1914, as critical resource allocation decisions had to be made to ensure that resources were used to the greatest benefit of the war effort. But then something different happened than what had happened in 1914. The war started very rapidly changing things. During the first two years of the First World War, there had been a few large naval actions, but there hadn't really been a lot of lessons learned that were taken from those actions and then incorporated into new ship designs. This would not really happen until Jutland, when the British would begin to make major changes to their battlecruisers. It was very different from the naval actions in 1939 and 1940. They were seen as great learning experiences, and those experiences were incorporated into design alterations for the Lions. But the ability to make changes to an existing design, especially one that has already been laid down on the slipway, were kind of limited and the desired changes rapidly expanded outside of what was possible, given the fact that the Lions had already started being built. One example of this is that some of the experience that the Royal Navy gained around providing protection from underwater explosions, so that's like proximity explosions from mines or torpedoes, and there were some design alterations that were needed to try and provide greater protection from these explosions. But these changes could not easily be worked into the Lion design because so many of the structural pieces of the bottom areas of the hull had already been fabricated or even installed. This put the Lions that had been started, the Lion and the Tamaraire, in a really awkward spot. They would continue in kind of a purgatory, both design and construction-wise, for several more years, because there was a hesitancy to just cancel the ships But there was also a recognition that by 1942 or 1943, even if they were restarted immediately and given priority, they would not be completed until 1946 at the earliest, and they were already outdated designs. This meant that on December 19, 1942, the leadership of Vickers Armstrong and Camel Laird requested that they be allowed to scrap the work that had been done up to that point not just to use the material, but also to free up the slips for other construction. This suggestion was agreed to by the Admiralty and the government, and the only battleship that would continue construction was the Vanguard, which was only done because they were spare 15-inch guns and mountings that had originally been planned for the Courageous and Glorious, battlecruisers built during the First World War but converted to aircraft carriers after the war. This meant that the construction time on Vanguard was going to be much shorter, and the resources required were were much lower, although it still would not be completed until after the war in 1946. It was the last battleship to be completed by any navy, including the Royal Navy, and it ended a long legacy of British battleships built by British shipyards. So looking back, the 30 years between, say, 1909 and 1939 were an interesting period for the British shipbuilding industry as it related to the largest naval vessels afloat, capital ships in the form of battlecruisers and battleships. It was a period that started with the ability of the British companies to construct these warships being unmatched by any other nation, and really uh, any almost any combination of two other nations. And it would end with one final burst of construction right before the Second World War, at which point Everything was reprioritized in the British economy, and there really wasn't space for large naval vessels that were not nearing completion. And it would be those battleships that were built in just the years before the war, and the carriers and the hundreds of smaller vessels that were built after 1936, that would be so greatly needed by the Royal Navy 
when the war did begin. And the reason that they were needed is because of the German Navy, a Navy that was built for, well, what was it built for? I'm not entirely sure, but we'll talk about it next episode. 